0: This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller, Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks.
1: You know, who who are the invisible people that we... Um, cross paths with, and how can we look them in the eye and affirm they're made in the image of God.
0: This is a podcast about two things, helping those with urgent needs in front of us today and improving the road so others can walk it safely in the future. Welcome to The Better Samaritan, the podcast where we're learning how to do good better. I'm Kent and co-director of the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College, and I'm joined by my colleagues Jamie Aiton and Laura Finch to explore how we can more effectively love our neighbors, from everyday acts of kindness to the most complex humanitarian challenges facing the church and society today. Today's guest is Nikki Toyama Situ, Executive Director of Christians for Social Action. And Nikki helps Christians have a faith-fueled and thoughtful engagement with the world's most challenging issues. Uh, We're so grateful that you're here, Nikki, and grateful for your work. Before uh, coming to be the Executive Director of Christians for Social Action. Nikki served in leadership positions at the International Justice Mission, the Urbana Conference, and Interversity Christian Fellowship. Uh, Nikki lives in the Washington, D.C. metro area with her family. Welcome, Nikki. So grateful to have you here.
1: Great. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Uh, Nikki, I wanted to start with understanding a little bit of your story and how you came into this sort of work. Uh, you hold a mechanical engineering degree from Stanford and master's in organizational leadership from Eastern University. What led you to like on this path, I know it's a big it's a lifelong question, but you know what led you to this path of now being executive director at Christians for Social Action? was there? Uh, One change that happened along the way is this a a series of events that happened in your life, but what led you to the leadership role that you have now?
1: Yeah, I would say one of the things that was uh, the most formative for me was when I was working in campus ministry. I was taking uh, students to go learn about what the global church is doing in different contexts during the summertime. And uh, one of those trips was a global poverty immersion called the Global Urban Trek, where we took students... To learn from what the local church is doing in the slums of Nairobi, the garbage village in Cairo, Egypt, and in the red light districts in Bangkok, Thailand. And I think that summer was really transformative for me. I found the scriptures come alive in a brand new kind of a way. I saw the way that... um, God was unfolding his stories in communities where I sort of least expected it. But also in the midst of that, I sensed an invitation from God to join in the work that he was doing, um, particularly among some of the most vulnerable people. And that was really one of the things that probably influenced um, the direction that I took uh, the most.
2: And Nikki, I'd be curious to know, you were talking about the stories unfolding in the communities around you. Curious what you saw or have seen your role in walking alongside communities during challenging times.
1: Yeah, I think it's um, it's been remarkable to me the way that uh, God shows up um, in and through people in unexpected places. Um So I think one of the things that I I think about, particularly from that time, was um, walking with folks in the garbage village in Cairo, Egypt. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is a community of folks who uh, they pick up your garbage on Thursday morning, whenever it is that you put it out, and they bring it into their home and they sort through it and uh, they sell whatever they can. And that's sort of how they make their living. And um, journeying through the garbage village was... um, a a really challenging journey. Um, there are flies everywhere and all this sort of thing. And yet at the same time, it is the location of the Orthodox uh, Christian church in Cairo. And so it's a community of uh, Christians and, um, their devotion to God and how much, um, persecution they faced was really shocking to me. Each of them had a, a cross on their wrist that they tattooed there. And, um, you know, for them, it was no small thing to say yes to Jesus every day, mm-hmm. um, and it, it cost them the jobs that they could have. People could tell who they were um, and, and where they lived uh, just by looking at them, and yet they always continued to say yes to Jesus. Um, so my experiences of prayer in that community were really powerful, too, but it was humbling to me to see um, how costly following Jesus was in that context, and yet... How they did so. um, and then, at the same time, I looked at how they lived, and I said, "I don't think Jesus intended for anybody to live with animals this way with piles of garbage in their living room, um, you know, filtering through medical waste and needles with, you know, the children were sorting through those. Those are the most valuable uh, garbage things. you know, so I think it was seeing the beautiful and also the things that were heartbreaking in the same place.
0: And what do you, Nick, as you've done this over the time and think about working in campus uh, ministry to your role now, you know, are, are there ways that your thinking have evolved on this theme of better Samaritan and Jamie and I, you know, think about how we want to keep getting better at loving our neighbors, but th- through that path, that, that's sort of an awakening to do this sort of work. And how have you gotten better, do you think, at helping your neighbors like that or neighbors that you're working with and Christians for social action now? Are there ways that you've Evolved in your thinking about how we can keep getting better at loving our neighbors?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, kind of, when I first was awakened to God's Heart for Justice, um, the way that I was thinking about it was a lot about like stewardship of resources. Or I was thinking, I was working with college students at that time, and I really wanted to challenge students to sort of take the wealth of their education and to spend it on behalf of the most vulnerable. Um, so that was sort of my original, I guess, framework. For that mm-hmm. but I think the way that things have really shifted for me has been less about like oh my goodness you know these how blessed am I and therefore what should what should I do or you know oh, I have responsibility that was sort of my main approach in the beginning but I think my my approach has really shifted from that to more what does friendship with Jesus look like um and and how can I be a better friend to Jesus but also this is Jesus's friends Um, and, and part of that frame is recognizing the humanity of, um, invisible people in our everyday lives. I mean, so like small examples of that would be like, you know, and this is sort of a before times (laughs) before we were all, um, you know, living very, um, you know, restricted lives. Mm -hmm. But, um, but I think even still, you know, who, who are the invisible people that we, Cross paths with, and how can we look them in the eye and affirm they're made in the image of Godness with little moments um, to sort of say to folks, you are not invisible. I see you, Um, but more so, I see you because um, the image of God is in you. You know, and I and I affirm that. Um, So I do feel like the shift has been less about what can I do, but a little bit more of how am I showing up. Um, Maybe another way of saying it is, um, how can I be a better neighbor?
2: Mm -hmm. Nikki, one of the things I really appreciated as you were sharing there, but also just a moment ago when you were talking about the experience uh, from your global poverty immersion trip and about how those that you were walking alongside had said yes to Jesus. So as you think about those who might be listening to this podcast, what are some other ways that they might be able to say yes to Jesus?
1: Oh, there's so many opportunities. (laughs) I think, um, and I think the hardest thing is we're so um, – we're busy. We're so preoccupied um, that uh, the yeses are all around. And this is the this is the great thing about Jesus. Jesus is so good and so kind, and he's always, always asking. So just because you don't say yes doesn't mean Jesus will stop. And it's not like Jesus asks once and like, oh, you sneezed and you missed it. Um, but I think that there are a couple of things – that you can think about in terms of saying yes to Jesus. Um, right, in in the scripture, there are things that are true and universal invitations for all times. Right, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and strength and mind, um, and love your neighbor as yourself. Um, so maybe if you use the love your neighbor as yourself as as an overall invitation, um, I love one of my good friends his posture on his block is he is looking out for opportunities in ways that he can um, love his neighbor. And so that meant one time, you know, when he mowed his own lawn that he jumped over and he mowed the lawn next to his as well. You know, I think it's, it's a little bit of a posture of how do you, you you seek out opportunities. So that would be one way of saying yes, is to, to keep your eyes open, um, to the life that's going on around you. I think the other one for me is when I notice particular places of pain for myself or particular areas of sorrow, mm-hmm. um, I use that as an invitation to say yes to Jesus for someone else. So in the moments when I'm feeling, oh, money feels a little tight, then I look for a little spot where I can be generous for someone else. Um, or, oh, and I'm feeling a little bit sad or lonely, then I kind of like take, Take that moment to, you know, write a note for the mother across the street whose um, kid went to college in a year that was not at all what they had dreamed. You know, for years. So I think you can both use the scriptures as as a way to go, okay, God, where are you inviting me today? Or you can also use kind of your own places of pain and sorrow as it's like, oh, is that an invitation for me to say yes to God?
0: Hmm. I love that framing of. Uh, loving neighbors, as part of you saying yes, noticing pain and then turning that into love or generosity is really beautiful. Uh, Nikki, another question, and it seems to me it relates a little bit to what you've been saying in this path of kind of noticing the hurt in the world and and going from like what we're doing to how we're being neighbors. Can you talk a little bit about the recent decision you made as a leader and and with your organization to go from? being called Evangelicals for Social Action to Christians for Social Action and and maybe tying in some of that history of, you know, rich Christians in an age of hunger with founder Ron Sider. You know, that was an influential book for many of us. For me, I think when I was in college when I first read it, but I'd love to hear some of your thinking about why you made that decision, especially in the context of of this, of how does that name change help you to serve and love your neighbors better as an organization.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so our organization uh, was started in 1977 uh, by Ron Sider, and Ron Sider had written this book called "Rich Christians in the Age of Hunger," which really helped folks take a look at what does Scripture say and what is going on in our world, and how is it that we use Scripture to understand um, God's invitation to us to respond. You know, so um, and uh, in the early days uh, we we were set up to uh, work around a couple of different areas around um, fighting of racism, uh, fighting of um, poverty. Uh, there was an anti-militarism posture and um, and also the, the raising up of women. Uh, those were kind of the initial things. They're documented in this uh, Chicago Declaration of Evangelical Social Concern which is quite a mouthful. Um, so e- uh, Evangelicals for Social Action was the network that was set up to kind of uh, further further these goals and really work um, towards those directions. Well, it was a wonderful thing at the time because uh, we're you know, particularly working with um, uh, the evangelical church and trying to help the evangelical church learn from these amazing things that were happening um, in Latin America uh, around issues of integral mission and, and the holistic gospel.
2: And, And, um, that may not uh, be familiar with that language of integral mission, could you unpack that just briefly for folks?
1: Sure, like integral mission or holistic gospel, um, talks about um, both the proclamation as well as the demonstration of the power of the gospel. Um, so there are sometimes uh, uh, conversations and debate about which is most important and uh, integral mission and the holistic gospel says, actually, both of these things are needed, both the um, proclamation evangelism is needed, as well as uh, demonstrations that might be social justice or um, uh, uh relief and, uh, caring for the poor and compassion that, uh, both of these things are needed. So, uh, the, under that framework of integral mission or holistic gospel, that's kind of, uh, it's it, it saying both proclaim as well as demonstrate the power of the gospel. Um, so, uh, evangelicals for social action was set up at that time, um, and, and was really trying to help, um, I think, um, put forward a more full discipleship, uh, what it means to more fully uh, follow uh, Jesus and to sort of expand people's categories. And um, one of the things that we have found in the last uh, 10 years or so um, is that uh, the, the way that people are describing who they are um, as Jesus followers, as Christians, you know, some of that was beginning to change, uh, particularly as we got into communities of color. um, And, and then also, um, There are ways that uh, evangelical was being used differently in the political realm um, and and kind of just commonly in in the press as well. Um, So as we were particularly working with some of these communities of color, uh, Latin American, Asian American, First Nations, African American communities, we began to realize, oh, um, people were making assumptions about who we were in and the folks we would work with that were quite opposite, actually, to the uh, work we were trying to do. So we had about a two and a half year process to, to discern, um, you know, who who is this community. And then among all of these different Christian organizations, what was God's particular invitation to us? Because we didn't want to necessarily, you know, try to do something that was beyond what God had for us. We wanted to be mostly faithful uh, to that. So um, at the end of that process, we decided to change our name to Christians for Social Action as an act of hospitality to a community of folks we were really trying to work with, which were uh, evangelicals, evangelical adjacent, post-evangelicals. Um, and, and it was a, a, a more racially and ethnically diverse community. And so we wanted to make sure that our language uh, communicated um, the community that we were working with and, and trying to help have a faith-fueled engagement with justice issues.
0: That's great, thanks Nikki. I think it points out the how thoughtful you are at every level, including the name of your organization to be able to to keep getting better at loving our, loving our neighbors along the way and thinking about communities that are you know, more often pushed to the side or not listened to as much and love that your efforts are, are seeking to center that part of the conversation. Yeah. Um, oh, actually, can I? I yes, yeah, Can please, I mention
1: but, one other thing that I of sort
0: of <laughs> thanks, Ken.
1: Um, You know, as we did this, the other thing we were very concerned about is a, there's a little bit sometimes of a dynamic within the Christian landscape where when people make a decision that's different, people start throwing theological bombs at each other uh, or, or or these sort of things. So actually. The other part of our discernment process that was really important is that we we did talk with some of our friends within the um, National Association of Evangelicals. And I just wanted to make sure it was really clear that as we made that decision and as we communicated about it, I wanted us to reflect with the NAE a different kind of a partnership, that um, different folks discern different communities that they're either working with or that sort of a thing. Um, but I wanted us to model out... Um, a, a new kind of a partnership or or a generosity um, that I want. I didn't want to say anything that would make their work harder, um, and I didn't. I wanted them to be feel a part of our decision making process as well. So, um, I would say how we went about it to me was almost as important as the conclusion that we ended up with.
0: Mm, I like that a lot. Could you speak? Some it's not exactly the same, but related to that as you work in this space and maybe it influenced this decision and the way you've led through this process for your organization, can you talk a little bit about this as an Asian American woman? How has that influenced how you approach the work of justice with like racial issues, structural issues, cultural issues? Do you think it gives you a, a different lens and how do you think that comes to play when you approach these issues that we're, we're working on as Christians?
1: Yeah. Um, well, I think one of the initial motivations for me engaging with justice um, has to do with my own family story. So I think that's one of the the first ways that this mm-hmm. comes forward. And, um, and that has to do with kind of our own experience of being part of uh, the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II and a little bit of my own wrestling for a time of where was the church when that was happening? Mm-hmm. And, and so part of my engaging with issues of like, you know children being separated at the border or um, racial justice issues right now is I don't want future generations to sort of say, where was the church when that was happening? Um, so I would say my own story directly in fa- impacts kind of both, and when I don't know what to do, that's one of my reference points. What do I wish someone else had done? when the situation was different. So so that um, that interplay is always there. But I think one of the ways that it affects how I lead is that um, I feel um, – and I, and I think this might be a little bit more unique to the culture. It's something I'm unpacking quite a bit. But when I hear in conversations about racism or, oh, I'm not a racist or why are we talking about those historical things, I think one of the things that for me as an Asian-American woman – is that I recognize that my story is a part of generation and generations of stories and, and that my current story is going to affect future generation stories. Um, it's just a little bit a part of our own mindset. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, when we're talking about racism today and when we ask questions about is this related or how is this related to the enslavement of a whole race of people in the United States or, about the displacement of first nations people like that to me feels very, very intuitive. So I think that there's some ways that, um, a historical engagement or the understanding how one generation affects another generation affects another generation. You know, those things are really biblical, right? They talk about the blessings and the curses, uh, um, that, that go many generations. Um, so I feel like in some ways that I get access to that because of my Asian American, um, background, um, and then I think the last thing is, being an Asian American woman, I have recognized the way that um, systems and structures really make a difference. I've recognized the way that budgets actually really affect people. Um, and and those engaging with those systems has become, I think, uh, really key because I recognize that when you are not a part of the system, it's very easy to sort of see the places where the systems are breaking down.
2: That's so helpful. Really appreciate all those insights, Nikki. And before we move on to the big five, I just have one more question for you. Um, what are some of the mistakes that you most often see individual Christian activists and organizations making as they do ministry?
1: Yeah. So one of the, one of the big mistakes I, I feel like Christian activists make um, is that they uh, take on secular methods And I think there's a lot to be learned from secular methods. But I think the other thing that as Christian activists we need to remember as well is that um, there is a story and a work that God is doing. And so what does it mean to both be prayerful people, to be people who are paying attention to God, how how God is forming us, and at the same time to wrestle for change, to work for change, and that sort of a thing. So I see – Christian activists sometimes live as if it all depended upon them. Um, And that to me is, and so burnout is a, is a real huge issue. Um, And on the other side, I do appreciate both the passion that Christian activists have as well as their belief that God is good and that thing, and God can change things that seem unchangeable. So those are the beautiful things that I kind of want to preserve. Um, within that space.
0: Uh, so then one more question before we go into the, the our big five, and I'm kind of proud of myself for waiting 15 minutes to ask this, and it's a question I've never asked anyone before. Um, but Nikki, how is the work of justice like swinging and doing trapeze? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, Kent, that's a really strange question. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, a little context. Last yeah, time we were talking, <laughs> last time Nikki and I were talking pre-pandemic, uh, we were together in Washington, <laughs> D.C., and I, you had just had experience uh, doing some trapezing, and I love that. <laughs> And thought of it as we started this conversation, and uh, so it can be a joke, but there might be some sort of balancing act. Like, have you thought about <laughs> that at all? Is there any anything of anything similar between the work of justice and uh, and doing trapeze? Uh, <laughs> just, I'm not oh, going can't trapeze. you get?
1: You're gonna make something profound out of something that was just very silly and fun. Um, but and I mean,
2: this is my favorite question that has ever been asked. The podcast. <laughs> so I thought it was gonna be hard to top the wrestling metaphor that Kent and I did with Michael on one of the episodes, but I think this is gonna to top it.
1: It's. I mean, actually, now that I've never thought about this before, but now that you've asked it, I. I do feel like there's a couple of different things. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, so one one was okay. I've never trapeze before, and um, I, it was just one of those really random things. I just kind of wanted to try, and you spend most of the time falling off the bar and into the net. And um, I think that's really good for leaders <laughs> to do oh. things that um, that they fail at regularly, because it, yeah, I, I just think that's it's good for character. Um, but uh, part of the trapeze. Thing is that you need to use momentum it will help you um swing and if you fight the momentum it actually is like three or four times as much work i spent most of the lesson fighting momentum and i didn't realize oh you just have to actually hang by your knees and just stretch back and um that there's a way that if you follow with the momentum so if the holy spirit is the momentum there's something about working against the holy spirit working with the wh- holy spirit um in the work of justice um the other part is you have to trust your partner who is going to catch you. And you. the catch is really about stretching back and being at the right place at the right time. So it's all about timing. And I think that that might be something too. in the work of justice, showing up and being present at the right time, just saying yes. Um, and then I guess one of the things I'm thinking about too is, is, is handing off, um, knowing when you should be faithful with something. And then you hand it off to the next group or the next person or the next thing. Um, I think it helps Christian activists not think that this is their thing to solve, but rather it's Mm -hmm. God's thing and that we, by his grace, are invited to be a part of this amazing and glorious story.
0: That's beautiful. And I also think you just wrote the table of contents for your next book, Nikki. (laughs) So uh, you can thank me when you're on the cover (laughs) piecing publicized <laughs> <laughs> all over absolutely. the country. Absolutely,
1: <laughs> absolutely.
0: No, that's really beautiful. I, I love all those lessons. Actually, it, it's really good. Um, so now to our big five, which are these kind of big five better Samaritan questions. that ties into the the theme of Dr. Martin Luther King's, you know, uh, juniors. Uh, rightly telling us we need to care for the person who's beat up and robbed by the side of the road, but also care about the road becoming safer for those who are going to come along it next. So this is in that context, we wanted to ask uh, first, what's something that has surprised you in your work?
1: It has surprised me how important uh, laughing and is <laughs> in the work of justice.
2: We would totally second that. That's uh, <laughs> it's very important. Um, so, how have you been, for our second question, how have you been learning to do good better in this phase of your work?
1: Yeah, I think the way that I've been learning to do good better is by having um, more curiosity about people that I initially
0: overlooked. Excellent. And a third question, how do you define humility in the context of doing activism and justice work?
1: Um, I think humility is having a right-sized view of um, the work that God is doing and your part in that work.
2: And for the fourth question, what's one thing you think we could all do to be able to help to make the road safer?
1: I think that... Um, the one thing that we could do is recognize that there are places where we already are where we can be the ones to ask the question about the folks who are invisible um, in in our communities. A, A real quick example of that is if your kids are in school and as you're advocating in your PTA for the things for them, are you also advocating in your PTA for kids who aren't speaking the same language as your kids or kids who don't have quite the same resources. Um, I just think there's a lot of ways that we're already in the pla- in places and in community. And if we could have a, a justice lens on those, I just think there's so much that can be done.
0: And last question, is, I think back on the conversation, how do you sustain hope in this work, whether that is know, being in the the community in Cairo, or the kind of slow change of, of social movements. How do you sustain hope, Nikki?
1: Yeah, I am a collector of and an active collector of stories um, and memories, and um, and I I try to keep little mementos from times where I felt like God really broke through. Or from story, I, I, I try to be very intentional about sort of saying, I need to remember this particular story and what is it that I can do um, to make sure that I remember it. Because um, there are moments um, when the pursuit of justice is rather hopeless or rather dark or very lonely. And um, so I actively collect these stories or little notes or little rocks to remind me of the places that um, God did do something pretty amazing or I met somebody who gave me um, great encouragement or hope. So Nikki, thanks
2: so much for being with us today and just for all these incredible insights and helping us to think about not only caring for those around the globe or our communities, but even those who are right next to us, our neighbors who maybe even live on our road. like the one example you gave earlier. And before we wrap up with you, just curious if there was anything that you have coming up next that you would like to be able
1: to share with our listeners that, Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the invitation. Um, Christians for Social Action, uh, we're a group of scholar activists who are trying to stir the imagination for what more full discipleship looks like and what a more just society looks like. And um, on our website, ChristiansforSocialAction.org, we have a section called Initiatives. um, And that's where we curate um, biblical theology or grounding around a particular issue. We highlight an organization um, engaging with that issue in a specific way. And then we give some tangible actions of how to respond. Um, And there's a couple of new initiatives that are coming out in the next month that I would love to invite folks to come onto the website, ChristiansForSocialAction.org, and check those out. It's a great place uh, for a first step if there's a particular issue that you're wondering how Christians should respond. Or if you're a longtime activist looking to to go deeper, um, it might connect you to some work that others in the country are doing.
0: Well, thank you, Nikki, for who you are uh, as a person and as a leader. And so appreciate getting to learn from you and your faithfulness and your uh, continuing to seek to do good better. So thank you for your time.
1: Great. Thanks. Thanks, Kent. Thanks, Jamie. Appreciate
0: it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as we did. Uh, so appreciate Nikki's thoughtful, faithful approach to these issues. And for me, I'm taking away, of course, the trapeze conversation. I love the the way she brought out those issues uh, of handoff and and being willing to fall and and finding safety and and being faithful in all of this. And then also, to keep looking out for invisible people as we do this sort of work and, and doing that extra effort to pay attention to who might be uh, being ignored and how we think about our organizations, our leadership, our church, our serving justice. And then finally, uh, saying yes to Jesus. How do we say yes to Jesus? Um, and the way she took us into how that leads us to seek opportunities to love our neighbors and even pay attention to our own hurts and you know whether it's sadness or if we're tight with money and that leading us into reaching out to others and being generous to others. So, so I hope you you again are encouraged to keep, keep growing, keep becoming a better Samaritan. Uh, I know I am and grateful that we can keep learning how to do good, better along with you.
2: Thanks for listening to the better Samaritan podcast. You can find links to things we mentioned during this episode in the show notes and special thanks to the brilliance for this fantastic music theme. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and subscribe. You can also follow the Humanitarian Disaster Institute out of Wheaton College on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'll see you next week as we continue together in this journey of learning to do good better.